Hi everyone, uh, welcome to Cast. This is the next episode, because I can't remember what episode it is. I think it might be 23. It's been a it's wee 23. while. It's 23, cool. Yeah, we're not we're, we're not quite in the 27 club yet, but we'll get there soon. Maybe, no, maybe not. Anyway, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Uh, this evening we are... <laughs> Christ. This evening we're joined by NetSec Focus, also known as Liam. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing all right. It's been. Uh, I'm just basically in the same room that I'm in all day, every day. So mm-hmm. you know, it's standard. <laughs> it's just a longer day. Vibes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's nice to have you on, man. Uh, because uh, anyone that's thought, pays attention to our Twitter uh, will know that your name pops up pretty much uh, every other episode uh, with something either nice to say about the episode or just in general. You've been a great supporter to us uh, since we started doing this podcast um, and. To be honest, we've wanted to get you on for a little bit of time, uh, even though I've only just learned that your name is Liam, uh, literally, obviously, 30 minutes before this started. So it's you nice said to you love me. Uh, I mean, we, we don't talk about what happens off air. Like, <laughs> what, what happens off air stays off air. But yes, I did. Um, this, one, this one time at Bandcamp. <laughs> this one time on Cast. Um <laughs> But yeah, no, honestly, thanks for joining us. Um, we've had loads of great guests. It's cool to add you onto that list as well. Um, so. I think you know probably what the drill is more than most and how we normally, uh, how we do these things. So, uh, how long have you been in the industry and what do you do? So I think in terms of the industry is, uh, if you're talking specifically security, then maybe shorter, but actually I'm kind of, I'm for the most part, I'm kind of security adjacent. Um, and so in industry working, um, since, uh, 2000, no wait, not 2008, uh, when I started an apprenticeship at British Aerospace in software engineering, um, working in, uh, so I started working on uh, avionics and real-time systems there, mm-hmm. um, in stuff that does sort of rooty-tooty-shooty stuff. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so there's been, so it's 98, whatever we are now, <laughs> I can't do the maths. A wee while. Something, no. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Yeah, 27 20, years. 23 years? 23. Jesus Christ. Okay. I think You've... when, uh, so Dan Card and I, I think, born in the same year. So when he said that, he said some dates as well. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck, that's me too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, Dan, no, obviously was on the cast before. Like, uh, I think he, yeah, I think he tried to dodge time as much as possible. <laughs> like, yeah, that most of my guests tend to as well. The horrible old man. <laughs> the harsh reality. Uh, yeah, great Dan, yeah, guy Dan. Uh, but no, that's, uh, yeah, what a start. Um, British Aerospace, that, that's incredible. And, uh, yeah, so they became BA systems. So actually, uh, I mean, it's a boring one of sort of corporate takeovers. I started at GEC Marconi for a month, and then they became they merged with British Aerospace or bought out, and they became BAE Systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started working in um, my first one was first project was on a, a bore sighting pod, which do kind of their if you look where the pilot is looking, his sights are obviously offset from whatever weapon systems he has, so it's calculating where that sight sits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I worked on F-16s, which are now long retired. <laughs> um, and then I worked on a couple of other projects for Eurofighter Radio um, and Radar Altimeter, which tells you how high off the ground you are. Um, and, and I say sort of that's, that's really sort of sound exciting and aggrandized projects, but really I was, I was sort of doing, here's the shit work that you need to do because <laughs> you're an apprentice, but it's a nice way to get into doing stuff. No, um, yeah, I mean, that's incredible. Like... Uh... It must that must have been daunting um, as well, it I would is. imagine. 
Uh, well, the thing is, like the you know the code that you, it was so some of it was written in Pascal for the FCC. And it was a lot of like the, the setting it up, so a lot of configuration where it's the ground crew are doing the, their work, um, and then the actual within the stuff itself, like they wouldn't let me do because it was hard. <laughs> Assembler, so like, what do you know? It's like I've done some Pascal before. Okay, you're going to work on this one, um, and then the other ones were kind of dicking around in an assembler and uh, and for some of the ship-based systems as well. That's ship with a P. I thought um, you said shit-based systems. Oh, well. shit -based that's why I thought. <laughs> Sorry, uh. that. So these are kind of um, uh, yeah naval weapon systems. So one of the projects I worked on was called uh, Weapons Offset. So it's another one where you have a GPS receiver, so you know where the ship is, but actually what you know is where the GPS receiver is, and then you need to offset versus every you know the barrel of a, tar a gun or the the tip of a warhead so you need to know what that is um, and that was done in ADA uh, which I think is still in use <laughs> but that's another one so it all had to be kind of NATO approved stuff so um, it's some weird kind of when you're going through in terms of problem solving and I'm jumping around a little bit and I did warn you this would happen um, is that the the target processor was a 286 because a 386 was a 286 with a with a Masco processor on the side and a 486, which was built on the chip, wasn't yet uh, approved by NATO. And so was then, um, you can't do floating point. And so you're doing trigonometry without, uh, you know, at high accuracy without doing floating point numbers. And so the trick is that you, before you give it to the processor, is you multiply everything by a thousand and then divide it by a thousand <laughs> on the other side. So oh, that makes just, sense. you don't have to worry about your sort of your accuracy. But yeah, it's that kind of like weird problem solving of, of stuff in in limited space. And actually we were talking about audio just before the call and, and I should have known better because some of the projects I worked on were for audio cockpit recording. So the kind of terrain, terrain, pull up type stuff. And um, and yeah, I spent about three weeks in a lab trying to compress audio down into into a sort of a usable file size, which was absolutely nothing, but yeah. also it was still audible. <laughs> and it was quite important because you want to tell pilots there's a there's a mountain over there. <laughs> and so yeah, just sort not of... not to quite the same extreme uh, as in jets, uh, but I did have to do a similar project when I was at university, where I think it was like Lego robotics. Or whatever uh, some of the classes were using like uh, and they paid me some money to do some like voice sound effects and i was like yeah that sounds great like, i've got loads of great ideas and then they're like yeah right so but the file size basically has to be like a couple of kilobits and i'm like you okay, okay. What now? <laughs> yeah it was basically nothing at all one because the chips were quite small so uh yeah i had to yeah that was an absolute nightmare to get something that was uh like you could actually understand that wasn't just this low muffle so, so i can you... imagine what it's like when it's something that is life or death uh, so, so you were you were recording sound effects for stuff all i can imagine now is you you as steven toast fire the nuclear weapons <laughs> fire the nuclear weapons <laughs> fire the nuclear weapons fire <laughs> anyone who's not listened to steven toast go and listen let's i have on. no idea what you're talking <laughs> so, about right so so matt matt berry uh, the actor is, yeah. is a is the so Stephen Toast is a is a kind of comedy on, or it was a comedy on Channel Four. I want to say in the early two thousands, um, and it was of this guy called Stephen Toast who was just uh, just in a recording studio all the time, and um, 
recording bits and pieces and there's a clip where I think it's the Royal Navy or something and essentially he's recording the voiceover from for like when the, the lifeboats and stuff are happening or like abandoning the, the thing so he, he starts the clip with fire the nuclear weapons they're like oh that's great Stephen yeah little bit dramatic we could just kind of <laughs> kind of tone that down a little bit and he's like all right yeah cool so he goes through a bunch of clips of of uh, fire nuclear weapons and eventually he's just like abandon the vessel immediately and everyone's like oh great yep and the, the clip cuts off so i'll i'll, uh, I'll put it in the show notes <laughs> so people can go and uh, check it out yes and the and the show notes yes uh yeah they, no, that sounds fascinating uh yeah, it does and i was was it your voice that was used in the end uh, or were you just responsible oh, for no, it no, absolutely not <laughs> Apparently they, uh, they use uh, women's voices because the uh, you're more likely to respond to it. There's no there's no sort of uh, I think it's from a Mal- Malcolm Gladwell podcast um, that mentioned about this, and it's just the fact that uh, you're more likely to stand up and listen to that voice rather than uh, rather than just go. It's yet another you know uh, sort of comms channel thing. It's here's a woman's voice telling you to you know pull up or uh, to rain things. So it just yeah, yeah, no idea kind of cuts through. I think there's also um, the frequencies uh, of your typical uh, kind of female voice as well are, are a little bit higher pitched and closer to. Uh, I, I think if I'm right, um, like they, they are literally more audible, so that would maybe make some sense from yeah. in a science standpoint. So yeah, no, that's fascinating. Uh, it does. So it sounds like yeah, a bit of a kind of kind of basic kind of coding background. Uh, Very yeah. So yeah. briefly. And I did, uh, so I did three years there, and I did, um, and during that, and I'm a massive supporter of the, the Apprentice Programme as well, and just uh, getting stuck in to do stuff. So uh, we'll sort of jump around a little bit, but in terms of the sort of routes into things, you know, that kind of, right, we're going to do, we're going to do one placements, we're going to show you stuff, um, and we're going to train you as well. So at the same time, I was doing, how to do an NBQ as part of it, but also doing a part-time degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and... What I found, something I had a really good experience with with um, with an apprenticeship, but I found other people um, that just didn't, you know, they're being used as basically interns elsewhere, yeah. um, which is a really shitty thing to do. So I think if there's going to be, uh, if you are looking at apprenticeships, then just look at the organisations organisations that you're going for, and what um, what you're going to get out of it, mm-hmm. because if you're like in a, in a you know two man and a and a garden shed company, then not that there's anything wrong with that, but the chances are you're not going to get the kind of exposure that you could get at, at other places. But then it's a question of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Nice. I can't um, was that was that, the first, was that the first question, or did we did we do the second question? We, we, I'm not. not we're, to, still, we're still on the first one. We're still still on the journey. I think. It was I think you can nicely seg into the into the route into industry. So yes, yeah, so I went through there and then went. Um, <laughs> actually, what I was going to do, so I deferred. So although I was doing a degree part-time there, which I never finished, um, I'd actually <laughs> deferred with the intention of um, going back after I finished my apprenticeship, go back to uni to go to Sussex to do computer science and artificial intelligence. And then um, my dad, who ran a company doing corporate security for financial organisations, um, offered me a job during the summer, and then I stayed. So <laughs> <laughs> turns out I really like money. And yeah. um, understandable, like yeah, uh, at so the end of the day, like you got to grab your opportunities as well. Sometimes when they come up, like because you're just going to go through uni, just waiting to obviously get a job at the end of it, kind of hard when yeah, someone just kind of goes, "No, uh, there's an opportunity right here." 
Yeah, I did about 10 years of thinking, I'll, well, I'll go back to uni and I'll go and start coding again, and then I never did. Um, and so I've just done bits and pieces from script, <laughs> just about <laughs> a lot of stuff on Stack Exchange, and then, yeah, cribbing off everyone else. But, um, yeah, never, I always thought for a long time I was going to get, you know, that was a developer route that was going to be in and, and didn't. Um, and so, yeah, I worked for my dad doing some things on uh, assessments, basically in terms of corporate security, was which largely kind of the physical security assessment uh, people and things. And um, and that job ranged from uh, pulling cables, putting stuff on walls, um, designing stuff. Uh, I did about five years there. My dad, unfortunately, got quite ill. Uh, he's fine now, um, but he got quite ill and basically sold up the company. And, um, and so... I moved on from there. Yeah, so did five years uh, working for pretty much um, companies based around in the city of London. Um, so a couple of uh, financial services companies uh, and foreign exchange traders, um, and one for sort of high valuable assets, mainly in people or, or IP. Um, which is quite good. Got a bit of travel out of that as well. Uh, so got to work in Luxembourg, uh, in Ireland, and. Um, uh, yeah, I was going to go to so fun one to start with. I was going to go to uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Tokyo, and basically the day before I got gastroenteritis and just oh, couldn't, couldn't stop both ends. And it's like we're going to have to sub you out. No. <laughs> the worst bit is then go the skills that I have for that are then having to basically do that over the phone, out of hours for me, mm. supporting someone who's having a whale of a time in Raffles Bar in, in Singapore. Uh, so. Oh man, that's tragic. Yeah, <laughs> so I definitely don't hold that against anyone still. <laughs> doesn't sound like it though. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I went from there to doing, so still in the sort of corporate security space, uh, moved to another company thinking that my route was going to be kind of, en- this is more sort of on the engineering side and, and design side, go into project management's the next step up. So I took mm-hmm. a job as a, what they call a project engineer at, at the company I was at which are like half design and stakeholder management and then producing things like bill of materials and, and hiring and, and not hiring, but uh, uh, moving kit onto sites and making sure the engineers have got what they need. And I did that for about six months on the promise that I was going to be moved off to more interesting projects as they were doing supermarkets, which is fine. Um, <laughs> but I hated it because if you look at any 30,000 square foot store, is the same as any others so in terms yeah. of design let's just get a rubber stamp out <laughs> just make it look like the other one um and they said oh we'll move you on to other projects we've got some other ones and i got a couple of sort of minor works in places and then um didn't really want to move you around i didn't really like the job uh and i my productivity massively dropped off yeah you mean to be uh, enthused and uh, inspired i think um yeah and i and i won't put it all on them because i was a complete and utter shit to work with because i just didn't like it <laughs> And so I had just struggled through getting stuff done and I kind of just ended up just handing in my notice with no backup plan. And you'd think that that was a, you know, that's really going to push you to do something else. And no, it absolutely fucked me. (laughs) I'm not saying ever stay in a job that is abusive. Uh, What I'm saying is if it's, if it's shit, you can absolutely hit the middle of the road. Like you don't have to do great. Just don't do terribly, but obviously don't put your your kind of your mental health at risk. Don't put your enjoyment of life at risk. Mm. Um, you can hit the middle of the road and do okay. And what I did is I just sunk way below that. And thought I was <laughs> really sticking it to the man, and, uh, and I didn't. Yeah, in retrospect, at the time, I was massively angry about everything. In retrospect, mm. it was me. 
I've got similar vibes in previous jobs, if I'm honest. Like, uh, when you look at it through a slightly different lens, normally an older lens, uh, you know, after you've got a bit more life experience, and you're like, I was a shithead, but, uh, but what can you do? That's life experience. So yeah, I met my old director maybe seven or eight years later, if sec, and, um, and it was just like, oh, and I thought for a second, oh, he's not going to want to talk to me. And then so it was like, oh, we did have a chat. And he said, well, what went wrong? And I said, I, just, I hated the job and I shouldn't mm. have done it. And he said, yeah, we, we kind of knew that you weren't having a good time and there was maybe something we could have done. And it was really kind of like I, I'd marched out of his office and he had, well, I'd handed him a notice and he said, thanks very much. Like there was no negotiation. It was just, <laughs> just happened. <laughs> yeah, left under a cloud. And uh, yeah, I think in that kind of looking back with just a rational maybe after about three pints as well rational, rational conversation about it um yeah just kind of put things into perspective um I've, that that concept of like handing a notice and people just accepting it i've had that a few times but it, i don't know if it says i'm a total cunt or not but like the, the times that i've handed my notice into people they've been like yep cool you're going on to be happier clearly you're unhappy here like one of the times that i handed a notice to a job um my boss took me aside in a taxi and went what why i'm like this this is why he went cool well you're gonna have a fun time for like three or four years this this was two jobs ago so kind of kind of lines up you're gonna have you're gonna have a tight good time for three or four years but they'll work you like a dog and burn you out and i'm not naming the company but my previous employer basically so yeah it's funny because he called it pretty much to the day it was like three to four years time you'll be burnt out and then three years to the date i handed notice in <laughs> so <laughs> Reminiscence. I know it's metal. And then I was chatting to him the other day, and he was just like, "So, so that I was like, you know, you called it, it to the date. It's like three years." He was like, "Fuck, so I did." Well, shit mm. happens. <laughs> Burnout is real, uh, but it, you know what? Is. Not everything works for us, and we sometimes find even entire career paths maybe don't work, and you have to reassess. Uh, I know I've done that like two times at this stage. Uh, so, but it's never, uh, it's not always a bad thing. So. Um, yeah, so what happened after that? You've made this call, you've quit, and... Uh, I quit with no backup plan, and no I spent plan, yeah. at about a month and a half's worth of savings to get through, and I was off work for three and a half months. Mm-hmm. So I was... Well, shit. Proper, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really struggling. I got a job at, um, at GE, and they were looking for um, a commissioning engineer um, who had some experience of hardware and low-level stuff, uh, and... Also, they wanted to sort of put me into sort of some of the interesting projects. They just bought out, um, I don't know if you know GE's business model, which is basically to buy up an entire industry and then own it. Yes. So, yeah, so their, their strategy is to move into an industry and then become first or second player in that or leave it. And they go in and they just buy up everyone or push them out of business by by sort of loss leadering everything. Yeah. And so um, they just bought a hardware company in Switzerland um, that was doing uh, like video encoding um, in hardware, which was at the time it was there was a lot of MJPEG, um, which is just taking a series of snapshot JPEGs and then stitching them together. Mm-hmm. Um, and this company had who was part of the um, I think they were an offspin uh, from some students at the University of Lausanne there, which is a big sort of tech university in in Switzerland. Um, and they just got bought out. Everyone gets a million quid. <laughs> well done. Um, obviously, I joined after that as G. Um, oh. And they were looking for an engineer who could kind of support some of the deployments and the design and putting stuff out. And they needed some experience of the corporate security side of, of you know, is this going to be used for, for effectively just for CCTV and some other applications as well. 
um, because now you've got sort of uh, video encoding onto network, which you didn't have at the time. There's a lot of analog cameras around. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I joined them and with the intention of joining the design and commissioning team for Heathrow Terminal 5. Um, which is going to be like 2,000 camera deployment uh, plus some other bits and pieces. Um, and so I did uh, design and commissioning um, on Terminal 5. And also I did some work remotely, unfortunately, which seems to be the story of my life, <laughs> never getting out anywhere. Um, I did work on Beijing Olympics for uh, track timing. So this is like full start timing. So that's what they were using the video encoding for, was to kind of, when you see those sort of crazy, you know, um, they sometimes flash it up. I don't know if you've watched the Olympics recently. They flash it up and say full start, and they see it was there. It's, it's basically there's a load of high speed, high um, high quality, and high encoded cameras that are just um, uh, the capturing who moved off there at what time. And so, um, rather than MJPEG, which has issues with um, with uh, artifacts, and same that you see in H.264 now, that you see kind of artifacts between. If you, when uh, you know iPlayer ships the nest, he says as someone who now doesn't live in the UK and definitely doesn't watch iPlayer. Of course, through a VPN. Is this your postcode? No. Yeah. <laughs> you can have um, my postcode this way. You stay here. <laughs> um, and so the idea was that so what this was doing is taking video uh, and then using uh, wavelet compression, which takes a series of Fourier transforms. So it's looking at the waveform of the image and then expressing that as a is a very 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 simplified version of, of, of Fourier transforms. Basically, what it does express a if you think of um, I don't know, I'm looking at the Audacity uh, waveform now, you could express that as a series of sine waves or a mm-hmm. sum, summation of, of sine waves, which is a Fourier transform. And so what you can then do is then the compression is massive because what you've got is an expression rather than the entire thing. To do that video requires a massive amount of computing. Um, they're using FPGAs and dedicated dedicated hardware to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gives you an incredibly high quality image. The cost is each of these boxes is like 20 grand. So <sighs> that's the payoff that you get. Um, so yeah, I did Beijing Olympics and I did uh, some work on New York subway as well. And like I say, yeah, stuck in <laughs> stuck in an office in Felton, which wasn't even my part of GE's office. It's just they didn't have a UK presence. So I sat with all the guys doing the um, uh, great big sort of baggage hold scanners in um, and the yeah the other part of the company that was doing some of the other physical security stuff. So yeah, we got to visit the US. It's done quite a few times. It's, uh, it's a, such a such a ridiculously nice country. And my boss, my boss had a vineyard. <laughs> so we just go to his house for dinner. Yeah. Oh yeah, you, you know, you're not just casual. I was, I was going to say, it sounds like you've got a very eclectic kind of experience range, which is really incredibly interesting. Or, or, or like, it sounds interesting on paper. It might have been fucking boring in real life, but like, but seeing all these done all this cool shit. Pretty- I was actually going to say something similar. So just in general, when I do a podcast, I typically just take out little notes like, as we go along of just the, basically your story, just things that I can co- jump back to if I ever need to. And like, see, when you look at your work experience on paper for like the different countries that you work in, like in the different jobs and companies you worked for. So like, what what you're saying? Colorful. Like, what you're saying, <laughs> Dave, is Liam is actually a spy. He's none of these things have actually been. A no, th- you've came out and said it, man. Like, come on. Like, but um, yeah, no, honestly, yeah, considering it's all been like, like you say, kind of remote and uh, not not necessarily like on site in, in these countries, because um, 
Yeah, on paper, like I say, it's very colourful. Uh, but anyway, it is, I mean, the thing is, it's a, it's a long one, and I'm giving you the highlights from it. There's a lot of shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, it's, it, 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 it's interesting the way it is. Uh, so actually, one of the things I did for um, just thinking about the stuff that we do now is that the when I was doing the commissioning for so you got 2000 cameras and then a whole load of other devices and they're all commissioned by hand effectively so someone goes along and puts the number in there and one of the things they couldn't do where they do commissioning checks at the other end you do first we do like a 10% sample or a 5% sample if if some of those are wrong then you increase the sample size and keep yeah. going to you say no this is shit go back and do everything and this is weeks and weeks and weeks worth of commissioning so one of the things that I did is like I'm gonna use I'm gonna learn SQL because I have access to <laughs> SQL database and I'm gonna I've got my Excel commissioning sheets and I'm gonna pull the stuff out of SQL and I'm gonna compare the two. And in the end what I did is just go, why the fuck are we going spending all this time commissioning it? I'll just write it directly into SQL. So it's just like looking at the stored procedures that are in there and then just effectively hitting go and commissioning the entire system just by dicking around on the on the inits. Bang. <laughs> and then, of course, yeah, don't tell anyone else. But of course, we build all the time. <laughs> so the fact we just hit go. Don't, and went to the pub. Just to clarify, don't tell anyone else. We're on a fucking podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally going worldwide. Like, it's just me. It's, I'm the only one that listens. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> are, are you like all ten thousand so far lessons that we've had? Like Net- just just yourself on. Room, L- on little room. little did we know, NetSec Focus is just a bot farm. Like, <laughs> keep it going. Uh, it looks great. Uh, it, gives me a, it gives me a wee confidence boost. That's fantastic. Oh, you were going to say something else there. <laughs> My dad listens to this. My dad listens to this. <laughs> I didn't say what I was going to say though, so it's fine. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Uh, so vineyards. Yeah, that, I think that's the, the, the last part I can remember. Which we'll swiftly move on to. Uh, so yeah, your boss had a vineyard. Yeah, it was ridiculous. I just sort of realised that I'm, you know, I'm not on a massive amount of pay. Uh, and there's a sort of disparity here, which is fine. You know, he's he's you know EMEA director, so that's that's okay for him to earn that much. Um, but then, yeah, I did a few years there, and then, um, like I say, sort of G just kind of they'll enter an industry and they'll just put out or they'll just sell sell everything off. And I think they're selling bits off to UTC. Um, and some other some other companies, and um, they were going to make it redundant. This is just after I paid for a massive holiday as well. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh no, um, it's all it's all happening again. Yeah. And uh, and they said, no, we're going to put you on gardening leave for six months, and here's a bonus, and here's all the other things. They just sort of gave me sort of you know big golden handshake, and and off I went. And I said to you, I was working at um, on Terminal Five for Heathrow, but they were looking at deploying this across the rest of the airport. And I said to the guys I was working with there, yeah, I'm off. So I'm off the contract. And they said, do you want a job? And I went, yep. <laughs> when can you start? I was like, um, I'm going on holiday. You want to come back from that? Can I start this? Yeah, yeah, we, we need people in. Nice. And, um, and so I did. So I did 14 years in aviation security. Wow. Um, including the time at GE. And that's that ranged from um, mainly cameras, uh, some access control, uh, and a lot of the stuff that comes around, uh, again, this kind of corporate security thing, so sort of, you know, protecting people and things. Um, and airports are quite a threat target. Um, and so, yeah, looking at perimeter security, uh, linking up systems as well, so these don't li- exist in isolation. Um, and I did, I did a couple of years, kind of 
um, looking after some of the minor projects there and assisting with with the sort of rollout of this this solution across the airport or airports. There's six at the time. Mm-hmm. So um, I've got a question. Then, yeah. So the so I've interest then. So you're involved in the camera deployment in Terminal Five. Were you involved in the? Um, I, I don't know if this is recent technology or if it's been around for a while. The technology that does like people tracking based on their walk, like because there's there's that's all with the camera system. It does like the um, height tracking of people to track people through the through crowds. Yeah, actually, yeah. So in queue counting um, uh, and analytics, yeah, because one of the things, let's say you arrive, so you deplane, which is uh, a technical term, and then the first thing that you do is that you go and then go through to the border. Yep. Um, And so various people have various queue timings for it. So, for example, getting to picking up your bags is one. Um, Getting off the plane is another. Um, But the thing is, when you go through all those uh, sort of... um, tensor barriers to get to there there is a metric on how quickly you need to get through to that there i know sometimes it feels like a long time but if you're deplaning a you know an a380 then the 600 would be good luck everyone um <laughs> and so that's done manually um and as well as the queue times at security so let's say you check in and drop your bag off and then you join that queue at the tensor barriers and they start opening up lanes. You think, oh, they, they must love me. I'm brilliant. And what it is, actually, the CAA has a requirement on how long it takes you from the point that you enter the queuing system to the point that you exit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there's mat- metrics there and there's fines for it as well. And so they're very important to be accurate. Um, and so what they would have is they'd have people looking at the cameras and they'll say, right, you're wearing a blue jumper. I'll track you and they have a stopwatch and they go through the other side and that's a costly endeavor to do mm. but it's accurate because um, they're doing that for the entire operation of the day which is typically 5 a.m till 11 p.m mm. um so that's like three or four shifts that's you know five or six people that's a lot of money involved in doing that because the fines are so high to get it wrong mm. um and so the analytics are really to look at the timing between those two points so you can do it through you know we'll have a Bluetooth beacon and one at the other end and we'll find someone that paired to it and then everyone stopped using Bluetooth because they stopped using Nokia 6210s and, <laughs> and no one had them anymore. <laughs> now now I have it on my phone all the time because everyone's got the Corona tracker thing on it. Well, that's that. True that. Um, and then if you do it through analytics, the problem is if you look at, uh, we're talking about physical infrastructure design for airports, if you go into a modern airport now and you go through check-in, you're at the top of the building um, because at the moment, at that point, you're what's deemed as dirty, so no one's security checked you. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you have as well as sort of nice open air space, it looks lovely and there's lots of space above you and it's triple high, it's you know it's 30 odd meters up to the up to the roof. And the morbid reality of a part of that, as well as looking nice, is that if you were to bring something into that building, the explosion goes up. Uh, into empty space where there is no people. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's expansion space for that. Uh. Um, and so that's why it's important to get people through and checked. And uh, I know there's, you know, get onto security theatre is a massive, massive one mm. to get into. There's a lot of things that are, as an airport operator, not your requirements. They they come from someone further up the Thames yeah. that will then tell you what you need to be doing. Um, and yeah, so the other problem with those high, triple height ceilings is that there are no air hooks. <laughs> There's nowhere to put cameras on. So you have everything kind of at oblique angles and on and on poles, but you don't want poles everywhere. Um, and so 
you get someone come to you with a I've got brand new um, video analytics for for tracking people and queue timings and you go okay that works really nice in your lab and in your corridor in your office can you show me this where you know we're limited where you put cameras and what the view what the fields of view are and also there's there's 17 lanes here so how are you going to do that and so that's the tricky part yeah. of, of what you're doing with with analytics and how effective they are um, I suppose you don't exactly have a massive airport to probably test this stuff in. Um, I suppose you probably should if, you, if it's specifically designed for that. But yeah, maybe a bit gutting for people that design a big system and then <laughs> try to put it into place. And nope, might not work as well as you thought. The interesting stuff you were saying there about timing queues and things, though, that's quite common practice in general with large events. So every year I go to DEFCON and I help out with like footflow and things. And one of the things they do when they initially open DEFCON, so you've got the, you've got LineCon to get badges and things. And one of the things they do is they try and time how long it takes for you to start in the queue to getting your badge. And using the very same technique with a stopwatch is exactly what they do. Now that there are probably higher tech ways of doing it, but we're talking 20,000 people, not the millions that go through an airport. But it's the same concept and it's really interesting to hear how it's done at scale versus digging a stopwatch out and going right okay cool start this right it took you eight minutes to go from the, the start of the queue because they they always aim this is something that probably not many people know though at the start of defcon they always aim to to get ticket sales as quickly as possible and what you were saying about them opening up different lanes is is, is applicable to defcon it's applicable to uh, large events as well so when you're queuing probably a prime example is if you're queuing to pay for something at like a a music festival and there's like a, a bar open and they've got multiple lines they'll open up the lines based on the time from start to finish but that's using computer technology rather than just a stopwatch but they do the same at defcon they if the time is over 20 minutes or something they open another line con lane to to pay for badges and then that reduces the time pretty substantially so it goes from like 20 minutes to 13 minutes or or nine minutes and i think the quickest we managed to get someone going from the start of the queue straight through to a badge was like a minute or something which is pretty pretty ridiculous but that's split in like twenty thousand people 15 or 20 ways yes it's a complex problem and because you have all these variables in place and 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 one of the things did look at doing is you know hand someone something and you know set that time and then when it's collected at the other end and the problem with that then from an operational point of view is that if i approach you at an airport and say can you carry this through security the first thing you should say is absolutely not can you phone the police (laughs) yes did you did you pack this bag yourself no that strange man from security gave me a box to carry through and it was fine (laughs) that's it yeah this is a tough problem because the you know and the other thing is if you go into an airport and there's go you know there's all these empty lanes why am i why am i having to queue through this thing is because the queue currently is at the right timing so you don't have to do it um but it is you know it's tricky and then um just jumping on there actually talking about the security journey um or sorry the passenger journey i do apologize we're going to go for industry speak um <laughs> is that you then go through a few a couple of things as you go through so sometimes you go through millimeter wave scanner um typically in the uk you wouldn't see a um, backscatter x-ray because you know they're entirely unpleasant mm-hmm. um, but you go through an archway metal detector and your stuff will then go through a uh, um, an x-ray machine which is a ct scanner so it's taking slices through stuff um, as your bag goes through as someone's sat there watching it um, and then when you if you get pinged for whatever reason and it may well be that you're um, I think I can say this. So, okay, <laughs> I'll think about this after the show if I should put it in or not. It's fine. When the archway metal detector goes off, uh, we go through t- 
turn around quickly and have a look at the display and if it says QUOT it means you've been quoted so you're like so depending on the threat level you'll be a one in something quota as well as anyone who actually pings it mm-hmm. um, so if you turn around as quota it's just because it's not because you've carried anything it's because you've just been unlucky um, and at that point as well as your bag will be searched and they'll swab it and there's a spectrum analyzer that looks at what your stuff has been in contact with and that's what they're doing with that little bit of cotton where they go through and they put it in a machine and they sort of hand you your bag back and off you go and here's your shoes I get like I, I, so I don't go abroad often I think, I think I'm maybe in total been in airports maybe like 10 times in my lifetime like, and I swear to god like 6 out of those 10 times I've been like uh, quoted <laughs> what you said there so uh, I wonder what that is <laughs> I mean you do look pretty fucking dodgy I mean I think that's probably it yeah yeah he looks like a rock star because he's got long hair get him I, I get I get I get pulled over all the time going through airport security like every single time when I used to work for Dell I used to travel on site a lot like I'd be flying abroad quite a lot and every time we went through security hands down I could put a bet on it and I did at points I'd get pulled over by security and checked and there was one time when I was flying through Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam and I was going through with my Dell laptop. So Dell issued three laptops to their consultants. They issued a corporate laptop, what's called a go-to-war laptop and a research laptop. The go-to-war laptop was your testing laptop and the research laptop was just for like fucking about on. But essentially this was one time where I had to take all three on site with me plus the power supplies. So the go-to-war Jeez. laptop was a Dell Precision workstation. So like the proper fucking carrying a brick about or like a, like a slab of concrete essentially with, mm-hmm. a, with a power supply which is a small brick as well. But if you think about it from an x-ray perspective, three machines stacked on top of each other with a fuck ton of cables definitely looks like a bomb. <laughs> yeah, so, for sure. <laughs> so that was going through the scanner, and my, my colleague Dan went through, and I was like, mate, mate I'm going to get pulled aside, guaranteed. And he was like, nah, nah, I, I, bet, I bet it'll be fine. And it was fine to start with. So I, I go through the scanner, it doesn't beep for the first time in fucking ages, like the, the metal detector, but the bag goes through. And you know, you know when you're at an airport and the bag goes through and they check it back through, like they, they, they reverse the, the scanner and push it back. That happened six times. And Dan was just standing there killing himself laughing. He was like, so, yeah. And then the, the woman stood up and she was like, uh, whose bag is this? And I was like, that would be, that'd be me. It's like, can we, can we speak to you please? I'm like, oh no. So they took... <laughs> So they took me aside. For, like, I didn't even realize uh, in in the airport they've got like separate rooms for searching bags and stuff because like in case it's sensitive content or whatever. So they took me aside to this room and searched my bag. And they went, "Can you explain everything to the bag?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah, no problem." So I was going through everything and uh, fair, fair play to the woman. She was like questioning things. She's like, "And what's this?" And me being a fucking idiot, I was like, well, it's totally not a bomb. And she was like, "What, what do you mean?" I was like, "Ah, oh, bollocks." Gee. <laughs> And the, fun- oh, the, the funny thing is, my colleague was sitting outside pissing himself laughing because he was like, don't say anything like that shit because they take it really fucking seriously. So anyway, they took my no charger. <laughs> oh yeah, they do, but they took my charger away and I was like, well, that's me fucked because the laptop wouldn't power on without this brick. So anyway, I got to site the next day and uh, Dan was like, so your laptop then? I was like, yeah, it's not going to charge. He's like, so the moral of the story is, folks. Don't tell people in the airport you're carrying a bomb and don't fucking joke about it because they don't have a sense of humour. They don't, and I, just sort of bring them around to sort of the, the, what's going on when that happens or what's going on as you're going through security is, is more than just sort of the technology involved there as well, There's, as well as, you know, a gut feel, uh, you know, there's quotas to meet, for example, for just kind of ran, random testing and it is 
as random as it, as it can be and we'll you know <laughs> I'll gently skip over that one but the, <laughs> there's a whole load of other things going on as well as, as well as when you do assessments you go there's a little your remit is this and there's a gut feel I think there's something else here and you'll you'll then go and see if you can have your scope changed or see if you can investigate further and that's exactly what's happening is that there's that gut feel of something there yeah. so it's not that full reliance on technology because it is it is fallible by a long stretch and humans um, uh, yeah I mean intuition and uh, gut instinct uh, is de- de- definitely a, a real invalid thing obviously it can't be used alone uh, but using it all together might give you better results I'm guessing yeah massively so mm. and what's happening as well when you're when your bag's going back and through that that machine they may sort of take the bag out and turn it around and put it back through so it is a ct scanner so it's taking slices through uh and, and imaging that and what you're seeing is actually the that gives an indication um i don't know if you've seen an image it's obviously great when it's on an audio podcast to talk about the pictures <laughs> um but you see sort of a false color image of what's in your bag and that's really they're colored by density um, so you're looking at materials at the same density as things that you're looking for, so explosives and things. Totally not a bomb. They must have seen <laughs> things, man. They must see things like... There's some horror shows. They must so the Northside Police Station, as well as at Heathrow, used to have a collection of shit that they found of people trying to get through. Like Not the bad stuff, but just like, here's a you know belt buckle knife and <laughs> kind of all sorts of stuff that people are well, I'll just take that through, it'll be fine. Like, I, for, I forgot I was waiting well, it, honestly. <laughs> well, actually, so funny, talking airports, airports are incredibly interesting. I've been through loads in my career, but I've half managed to get knives and machetes and stuff accidentally through security. So I flew to Italy for a job on site, and I had a, a like a fucking, I want to say a machete, but it wasn't a machete. It was like, you, you know, a bread knife sized knife, like a pretty reasonably sized knife. And I can't remember for the life of me why I had it in my rucksack, but I had it in my rucksack. And I went through security at Glasgow, and it went through no problem. Flew to Italy with a bread knife in my bag, got through, did my job, did the job, got back, went through airport security in Italy. The guy in Italy searched my bag, took everything out of my bag. This fucking knife was in there. Must have just kind of put it to one side. This is fine. Put everything back in, back on a plane, back to Glasgow. And I'm like, well... And now the listener is wondering, why was Andy carrying a bread knife? Well, you see, I can't remember why it was in that bag. I have a feeling I was going to cut bread at some point, but not with that bag. You're going to Italy, it's got some nice breads there, some focaccia. Yeah, true, true. But the, the moral of the story is, like, you can get through airport security if you're not intending to take stuff through, if you take it through accidentally. <laughs> but don't tell them you think it's a bomb, because that's how bad stuff happens. Life lesson <laughs> from Andy. There you go. <laughs> stuff that's that's kind of you know you're, you're not going to catch everything it's not 100 percent. it's it's very much you know when these people are sort of working long shifts i'm not i'm not excusing you know saying well they can get through because they're working long shifts but i'm just saying that there's what are you looking at if you go through onto you know go from a military base or you know somewhere cleared then you're gonna you're gonna be prodded and poked in various directions um and the threat is slightly lower obviously the you know there, there are obviously threats there um but the the other thing as well is for example when you book your ticket so there's a whole load of stuff that happens before you arrive on the airport so you book your ticket or in your name and the reason why oh, we need the, your, your you know you need advanced passenger information and you have to put that all in is because there's a whole load of stuff that goes background check so there's a, there's this culmination of you as a person um as well as you traveling through the airport and it's not saying that well that's going to solve everyone from you know trying to take a 
but not through like a dickhead. But <laughs> does that mean I'm on a blacklist then if I get searched every time? I can I can certainly find someone to put you on one. <laughs> I would put you on one. I mean, I, 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 I would I would probably put me on one. To be fair, one of the questions that came up when I was chatting to someone not on, not related to the podcast, but somebody uh, was chatting about this in work chat that the FBI lost a 1.9 million list of terrorists. And everyone was like, oh yeah, 1.9 million. I was like, am I the only one thinking there's a 1.9 million long line list of people who are terrorists? That's a fucking problem, folks. That's a fucking problem. <laughs> and then my, my, my colleague was like, and guaranteed we're probably all on it. I'm like, yeah, probably. Cyber terrorist. <laughs> yeah. <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do crime. So, yeah, let's, let's <laughs> progress forward then. So airports, <laughs> scanners, and they giving advice. Yeah, so did that with a lot of um, sort of technology involved in the kind of physical protection there as well. Uh, and then I moved on to Terminal 2 when that was kind of, in fact, when Terminal 2 hadn't been pulled down yet. So I was working out of the old control tower um, and I was the design authority for security services for Terminal 2. And that was doing sort of more of the same, really getting really involved into that. So, um, you know, another sort of 2000 camera deployment, 1300 doors, um, various bits and pieces. So the stakeholders are quite strange across an airport. So you've got retail, obviously you've got airlines, you've got the airport operator themselves, you've got engineering, you've got um, baggage handling, and then you've got customs and excise and border force and counterterrorism command and aviation security. Um, and you've got, uh, yeah, the kind of people that da- bring Dan Card back into it, the kind of people that Dan Card loves. Um, <laughs> Have, yeah, it's quite an interesting thing, like list of stakeholders with all various different things. Obviously, if you're retail, you want to stop people from nicking stuff or at least monitor staff and things. Then you get all the way to the other side. You've got counterterrorism command. You want to have a look at, you know, who are who are the Andes carrying bread knives to Italy? Mm-hmm. Um, just just to just to clarify, I don't carry a bread knife every time I go through an airport. That was a one-off. I'm not a fucking psychopath. No, I'm, well, okay, I'm going to agree with you, so you don't come here with a bread knife. <laughs> Probably for the best. That's a great decision. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's a God. I mean, it's a, it's a lot to make sure it is secure. I guess it's the same for computers as well. To be fair, and networks. Uh, yeah, a lot of things that probably all have to work together to to secure the the operational area. I guess uh, a lot yeah, of responsibility. Yeah, a big team as well. So it's not just you know, yeah. design authority is not the same as I own this, uh, and so. It's just making sure that solutions that are that are procured and put in, because so you know, it would be a number of integrators and suppliers and builders and things that will, will physically put this in. Are they doing the right thing? Mm. Um, uh, and so yeah, it's quite an interesting project. I think it's the biggest building site in Europe for about two years. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's an enormous operation. Um, and then from there, uh, did some other projects around Heathrow. Uh, before uh, I moved over to, in fact, we're right up to present day, really. So I moved from airports and then into uh, my current role. So I live in the Netherlands now. Um, moved out last, not last year. Wait, what year are we in? Twenty twenty one. Even those these yes. days, like, honestly. <laughs> January twenty twenty, uh, or December twenty nineteen. I, I started another role elsewhere. So doing a very similar thing, but across across a big bigger portfolio and, and sort of interesting places um, and it's really looking after um, what they're doing for physical security but the reason why they're so sort of information security adjacent is because what you're doing the operation 
of that and this kind of we're slowly slowly seeing this convergence of, of information security being part of the solutions building and i know when in fact it was andy had about the sort of uh, the various hats i'm kind of never quite sure where i fit in it's because i'm on the design side and i'm not designing security solutions as in information security solutions i'm designing solutions that have a strong security requirement mm. um and so these need to be operationally secure um so Know, can we trust the data that we're getting from these systems because we're making decisions based on this um and actually that that sort of that's that goes across a whole load of other stuff as well so every other thing that you think so if you think you're banking what the security information security is providing is correct operation of the system um you know, the, bre the breach part aside although loss of data is incorrect operation of the system um and then this kind of convergence of finally of, of, of building that in I know that sounds like buzzword bingo, um, but it all happens like early on in the process. So that's that's part of my role as well is having understanding of what this data is doing, where we're moving it, how that's captured and trusted and, and acted upon. Because a lot of the stuff you're putting in a raw image. So we're talking about the, the you know people tracking. Um, do I trust the image at the start? Um, and I'm making decisions based on that data. Um, so there's, there's there's a you know, an information security requirement on there. And there's also who's accessing this, uh, where are you reaching? If you've got global reach, which is what I do now, <laughs> it's a self-aggrandizement. Um, <laughs> it's a, some of these areas that I'm working in are not necessarily, you know, they might be in a leased office or they might be in a in the middle of nowhere or they might be in uh, on a Caribbean island is one of them. We're like, how do we get data from here to here? And I'm like, I don't... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> can we get anything? Can we get anything point to point? And they're like, no, because there's trees in the way. And like, fuck. <laughs> what about if you trench it? And it's just like it's like seven kilometers, and it's a hundred grand per kilometer. And you're like, okay. <laughs> so it's like, what do you do? It's just sort of putting GSM stuff out. So then you're relying on GSM. What's the implication of that data? Do we do we segregate that off from what we're doing? So there's a lot of fascinating. Really kind of looking at a solution uh, holistically, in you know, the wankiest of ways, but to to understand we're making decisions on big scale so you know global reach which which data center we're using for you know for a cloud services provider and how we're getting data in and out of there and what are we doing on a on a much smaller scale of, of doing um of still protecting the same kind of solutions but uh but in a sort of micro scale on based on that fascinating yeah and that you say that takes up kind of present day there um just to roll it back a little bit to uh, so it sounds like did you move uh was that the first time you've kind of moved and worked in a in another country by the sounds of it uh, is this your uh, yeah like I say, with working working for my dad's company and then working for ge it was kind of back and forth and back and forth and so that was never kind of up sticks and and so that was you know living out of hotels and um uh yeah particularly in luxembourg i worked there for i think about a year on and off mainly out of a hotel yeah and um yeah, now it's just, you know, I've moved, everything's packed up. <laughs> moved country, still shit at Dutch. <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> no, that's it. No, but that's a, it's an interesting jump. It'll be something I'm curious because I suppose with these kind of careers, they they can take you across the world if you want to let it. Um, and, you know, you get yourself into the right field. So I'm wondering if that's something that will be on the cards for me kind of later down the line. So it's always interesting to hear. And did that happen basically just pre-COVID then? Um yeah, someone reached out in July 2019, no, June, I think, and I'd broken my leg in May 
and I was just sort of sitting in the garden and someone sent me a, a spec through and I said this looks like my job <laughs> which is rare because it's not that I'm particularly niche but it's just sort of you know looking looking at that kind of stuff is is not there's only a few players at scale yeah um you know, there's plenty there's plenty of companies that do it if you look at uh, look across the patch and um it just sort of, that looked like my job and they're trying to poach me and I was like well I can't really interview at the moment because I've got a broken leg and um and they said uh, okay we can do a couple of phone interviews but they're quite you know they're quite keen to get someone in to, to back, they want to backfill a role and also expand the role and um and I said, okay, well, I should be able to sort of move by, by August, as in move around mm. to go for an interview. And they did it over the phone. Eventually, it took us a couple of rounds of that, and then um, there were kind of discussions about whether we want to make that massive move. And I say massive. I know other people make much bigger moves. You know, move to South America or something. I moved. You know, you could almost sort of stand in Kent and point at where the Netherlands is, um, but the it's still sort of culturally it's still northern europe it's you know having kind of integrated he says not speaking dutch <laughs> it's the same stuff it's so easy to move across i can imagine um yeah. i think trying to weigh up whether that would be hard or not um was quite kind of a quite leap one of the things that it did do i think the uh the benefit of being reasonably senior in both age and and job is that they assigned me a relocations officer who did everything it was fucking great <laughs> i've never had that and i think i think now we're having had it it's a bit like when you fly business class you're like well i'm not gonna fly economy again this is ridiculous um yeah she ended up with um you know, went through the kind of houses that I wanted where I wanted to be. I said, I don't want a big commute. And she, um, she basically put like 13 houses together and came over for came over for two days and just did a whistle stop tour of everything. Wow. And then just said, that that one. <laughs> and I have now, as if I am in the office, which I will be on Tuesday, uh, I have a seven minute bike ride to the office, oh, which nice. went from an hour's commute to seven minute bike ride through the sunshine on well-maintained bicycle infrastructure it's great that, yeah that, that, that is fat as well good stuff that is one of the great things about amsterdam i mean the, the few times that i have been the bicycle infrastructure just just in general the travel infrastructure is phenomenal like getting anywhere in amsterdam is really easy like the tram network's phenomenal cycling anywhere is phenomenal walking most places is pretty easy as well like it's just generally apart from the canals when you're a little bit drunk or um other, <laughs> or otherwise engaged with other substances um because it's legal over there um but yeah uh, it's decriminalized which i think is different from being legal <laughs> yeah not quite the same yeah. thing yeah. oh well shit <laughs> <laughs> don't do crime this folks. is why you get stopped at airports andy because <laughs> you say this stuff on public podcasts but it's fine that's why you're... it's fine nobody listens to this anyway it's just dave's dad and uh bot farms maybe <laughs> <laughs> um yeah some leap though like um uh, that's fascinating do you find yourself um so do you find yourself being able to communicate in English kind of more often than oh, not? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. deeply, deeply embarrassed by just having one language and some quite touristy French and some... <laughs> I can I can order food in Dutch. And even then, they're like... Mm, I'm very kindly switch to English without blinking an eye. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I work with a global team. So, you know, our guys in, and girls uh, in my team that are across, you know, India... Um, Hungary, no, sorry, not Hungary, Bulgaria. Sorry to any Hungarians or Bulgarians listening in. <laughs> um, US, particularly, um, and then you know, mainly here. And actually, for English, they now teach from the age of six. I think they teach English, so yeah. it's got an incredibly and embarrassing high level. 
it's yep. embarrassing. Yeah, embarrassing is the word to be honest. Um, it's it, what always just in general terms whenever I speak to somebody uh, that say, English is maybe their second language, but they're from maybe kind of Central Europe, like um, and probably even further away. Um, I'm just astounded at how good they are uh, whenever I speak to them, and the, the fact is they're always so. Uh, and there's one guy Louis that I play games with online. Just met him over lockdown. Uh, he's now kind of part of a wee group. Um, and he's just always kind of saying to himself like, oh yeah, my English isn't that great and I've never heard him say anything wrong. I think he's better than the rest of us, to be quite frank. So, <laughs> no, that, that, that's awesome. Uh, yes. Andy, do you find kind of similar, uh, I know you've kind of worked with um, countries that, or you've worked for businesses that have kind of clients all over the world and stuff. Uh, do you find uh, uh, just speaking English tends to get you by? Um, yeah, for the most part. I mean, my my speaking of other languages is very limited, as um, as our previous one of our previous guests, uh, Morgan or Mormaid, will know. My French is fucking terrible, um, <laughs> and all, I only know how to say very rude things in French that would get me punched in the face by a lot of people. Not cunt, but I just like just 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 lewd things. Mm-hmm. But um, like yeah, but in in general, the the statement about folks who speak really good English. It's actually ridiculous to to see in conversation and hear in like phone calls and things. Like we do a lot of work with clients in Germany, and the Germans are phenomenal phenomenal yeah. at it. They will switch between German and English at the drop of a hat. Like we were in a discussion yesterday. I think it was either yesterday or before, and the two the the, the two clients were chatting about stuff, but in in English and really, and then just all of a sudden flip to German to discuss something in the office, and then flip back to English again. Just like like I don't know, it's mental. But then. Yeah, I that in my first week of um yeah, I was in a little office with uh two other Dutch guys and they were they they switched to English when I when I basically walked in and then they just said, oh, I do apologise we're gonna speak Dutch now because I just wanna get this out very, very quickly <laughs> and then he's always Dutch, 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 Dutch and they went metric fuckton and then went back to Dutch <laughs> <laughs> Well, I got that bit. Either I speak Dutch or... It'd be funny if it <laughs> actually something means else. something entirely different. Like... <laughs> well, I have found that Dutch swearing is, is, is useless. It's rubbish. So they just drop, seem to just drop in English swearing instead. I suppose we do do it well. Like, we don't do a lot well over here, but I suppose swearing at things is probably it's, up It's up something there. we're very good at. But actually, funnily enough, I was ch- so I work with an American consultancy. And it's known quite well that Americans are shite at swearing. Like... I, I saw a comedy sketch this morning and it was a Scottish guy taking the piss of Americans and I was like, oh, that's me in the workplace. But um, <laughs> essentially he was saying that Americans are shit swearing because they don't, they, they add too many vowels to things or they, they overly elongate sentences and things, which is very true if you ever speak to any Americans and if there's any Americans listening, you can probably say this in your head. They say twat instead of twat and it, it kind of removes the the vulgarness of twat and it's like the worst word i mean yeah they've got cunt but it's the worst word that you can say to someone is twat that they consider an insult but when we say things and someone someone gave this out for for people who are listening and haven't and, and don't have any context i recorded a podcast with somebody else in february and went off on a, a as my, as i do usually a sweary rant and one of my american friends listened to it and she was like Wow, you! I've never heard someone use swearing in such colloquial terms in a sentence. And I'm like, you should come to Scotland and listen to a Ned have a conversation. She's like, what's a Ned? I'm like, all right, cool. Well, that's game over. Uh, <laughs> for anyone, anyone outside of Glasgow knows what a Ned is, mate. Like, Chav, Bam, Chav, fucking yeah. Bellend, cunt. I don't know. Like, all I just 
I might just cut this entire section or bleep, bleep out like at least ninety oh, percent of it. You should just you should you should attempt to bleep it because I, I love it when Dave bleeps out things. He fucks it up. He's like, I think you do fucking... it intentionally so that I do it. Like, <laughs> anyway, we swiftly move on. We digress. Uh, <laughs> answer the so, question. Yes, I encourage people that speak different languages. <laughs> yeah, and you just swear at them. They're fantastic. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, geez, like what, what a career, and obviously, still very much going. <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah, being alright at the moment. Just um, uh, yeah, so, like the same kind of thing, but at a but a bigger scale, which is daunting at times. Mm. But then, so actually, I didn't say what I do. So it's, it's on the design <laughs> side. So I work in solution architecture, which is basically if you have a. Uh, it's it's going to sound wanky because it's, it's, as soon as you say architecture, it always it sort of galls me a little bit that it's that word. It should be something else, um, and it's really looking at what the solution is. So, and that's maybe various parts of technology and leaning on other stuff that we call reliant services. So, you know, if you're looking for authentication services, um, then ideally you're not having your own one for each service. Um, and so, the solution, as I refer to it here. Is like anything that makes that that particular business function works is like a loose coupling of business functions together. So, if you look at video surveillance, for example, will be, uh, you know, not only video capture, but you've got the network of elements associated with that. You've got some recording of distribution, and um, and then you've got all the other bells and whistles on top as well. How's that managed? Um, uh, and then and then that's integrated with other solutions. And then this whole thing, kind of that's where the architecture point comes in. Is basically I sit at drawing boxes. Mm-hmm. And then I draw an arrow between those three things, and I say, "This is the data flow that's there." It does actually get quite detailed because coming back to what the you know the information security aspect of things that is 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 what is that box doing to the data? Where is that moving from there? And I do have so in my immediate team that there'll be me uh, and then a, also a data architect and then what they call a focal point for security, and they'll come in with the um, like the framework requirements, and I'll have to then say how these how these requirements are met by what part of the solution, and also kind of a little bit of everyone kind of marks their own homework. Uh, sorry, other people's homework. <laughs> um, so it's really like shipping all that data around is like how is that protected? So you can't just say oh I'm using TDE on this thing. You say, okay, well that's great. How does it get there? How do we know it's there? What happens? You know, what the deletion policies apply to that? Who has access to it? How is that managed? Um, and so there's, there's there's a whole load of stuff that is that is a bit more than a kind of uh, like just auditing. Um, it's it's me proposing what the solution should be, and then I have to go through various boards, and people come and prod and poke at it, and it feels like shit a lot of the time because I've just done three months on this, and they go, "What about this thing?" And you go, "Fuck you!" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, of course. Uh, but it is, uh. It's actually you know it's it's far less. Okay, so someone comes, someone comes sneering at what you're doing because you do peer reviews, and it's exactly this, and it's that kind of uh, red teaming with a lowercase R and T. Um, in that, what's the what's that sort of devil's advocate view of what's going on, and that is really, really useful because one of the things that you see when you're doing design is that you're very focused on on what you've got and what you can see in these kind of Rumsfeld style known knowns and known unknowns. Um, and you assume that you know all of the unknowns and you're just going to bottom those out until you've got a big bucket of things that you know that is everything. And someone comes in and says, what's this? You know, there's a slightly different angle on it. And so that kind of peer review process does take some of the... Um, uh, that kind of like resting on your laurels of how great I am with a, with a type of architect. And it's actually, no, this is part of a work 
in within this uh, with the idea that other people have a look at my stuff and I have a look at theirs. So there's a sort of you know stronger together, ape strong together. Kind of <laughs> it definitely forces a humbleness, I'm sure. Uh, but like you say, tunnel vision like it's so easy to get. Like um, oh, I, I did it last year because I was you know just settling into the role, got in there, did this thing, and you know handed it back over to someone who had a look at it and went mm, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, Could we have a conversation then, please? <laughs> and it was like just stupid things. I think there'd been a series of assumptions that I'd made at the beginning that by the sort of halfway through it had become really firm, confirmed, confirmed stuff. Um, and yeah, it's really yeah, like I say with tunnel vision, it's really hard to kind of avoid that. Um, and so if you look at the sort of DevOps people, you look at design people are doing this for a various stages. I do largely sort of putting stuff together. Um, there is a DevOps element to it as well, so I do kind of. You know, these are the kind of APIs we're presenting, and then DevOps go and then code that in the background and say this fucking architect is fucking <laughs> bullshit again. We know how to make it work, but there's also like with that as well is that there's no, um, it's actually quite a flat structure. So if DevOps go, what fresh hell is this? <laughs> that there's that can be communicated back to me and largely will be met by my embarrassment rather than me just stamping <laughs> my feet and going, do you know who I am? And there's yeah, there's definitely a there's a a benefit to humbleness. Yeah. No, of course. And is it is neurodiverse the term, or when you get loads of people with different kind of mindsets uh, in a room to look at a, a different a you, problem, like find different solutions? Neurodiversity just means people that have um, like autism and, and different mental health is it? conditions. Okay, yeah. well I've totally so, got that term wrong. So t- typically the two terms are <laughs> neurodiverse is someone who has like autism or Asperger's, and someone who's neurotypical is someone that doesn't have that. And, oh, okay, so yeah. yeah, completely misunderstood that term. But I guess my point is, uh, even in that regard, like just getting people from diff- different thought patterns, different ways of looking at problems, uh, uh, to try and yeah, di- diversify what you're doing and just make sure everything's been considered. So it's, it's not a real challenge of a job, um, but also probably a really rewarding one as well. Um, is it quite hard when you're dealing with things that are quite conceptually quite quite broad uh, and uh, at the, something about the kind of jobs you've described there I think you must have to be able to yeah like take this massive chain of things and just conceptualize it in your brain uh, I'd imagine yeah that sounds very daunting to me uh, I suppose it's very much like that across all network security in general uh, but yeah definitely sounds like there's also kind of there's there's like um uh like the the view that you take to it so I could draw I could draw your box diagram of how this thing works and then you're going to ask me about what's this what's this here and what's that process and what the hell does that do data go and to, be able to dive to sign that for the death just just those yeah. <laughs> audio podcast but you that's, can sort of dive that's in the, and out that's at the joke levels. Dave that's the joke <laughs> <laughs> sorry sorry Liam um, you go no it's what I know actually so it works out so if I design so the document that I actually provide after doing months and months of, of, of going through this and there's a there's a whole lot of testing involved in that as well and going through to suppliers um, is the document that I provide is actually very lightweight and the first thing that is in that is a what does this do and it's called an IGO and it's the inputs Jesus Christ I wish I hadn't said it now because I should have said it now it does now it's a thing and it does things yeah it basically tells you what's going into it what process apply to it who what's the output and who are the operators yep. and it's what is this and what's in the middle is the solution so it gives you a view of what this thing's doing gives that context and actually it's just providing the context we get as you go through the document it gets deeper and deeper as you go through what what other things does it actually connect to so what authentication services or um user identity management what does it uh, you know what are the things that it attaches to and then 
in those things it attached to what is the data flowing between there and and things like data mastership and um it's like a oh christ it's crud matrix which is created red and something <laughs> deleted so it's basically what you know how is this all being what are all of the data fields that are being in there what they're doing and then you know the further you get into it the the more detail you're in yeah, and more granular and, you get i guess like yeah you know, i suppose it's just like pen test reports as an executive summary get someone to understand it very quickly and then uh, drill into the individual areas when it's needed um but yeah. yeah fascinating stuff that's it and then the reviewers the various reviewers it goes through and the, and the people who are going to sign that document off will have an interest in maybe the data side of things and then we'll have a look at and they'll be responsible for you know they'll be the kind of lead security architects they'll want to go and have a look at how that, that now they know what the data is and it's in its scope they'll then go and have a look at what the controls are in place and they're not necessarily interested in you know what are the uh you know kind of maintenance type software maintenance view on this is or the licensing model for the for any products that we're buying or SaaS solutions and things and so that one document which gets quite detailed towards the end um is is read by various authors uh, various readers in in different ways mm. yeah and they'll take out what they need yeah that, that's yeah. honestly that's incredible uh it sounds like it sounds like a good role Again, just hearing lots of similarities in the kind of questions that you're asking of these systems as you're designing them are the kind of things that I tend to ask when I do cyber essentials audits. Um, and just, yeah, like you say, just ownership, what's the policy, What what's the underlying technology that um, underpins it and stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I know, very cool, very cool. Um, I suppose what we could, now we kind of know how your careers went and the different kind of jobs you've got um, just to take it slightly off track there a little bit because it's always good to uh, the the ask box. these questions <laughs> um, what do you uh, so that's what you do for your job but obviously yeah. there's more to people than just a job so what kind of stuff do you do to when you get the opportunity uh, kind of un- unplug uh, and decompress apart from listening to Ouija care apart from listening to Ouija <laughs> care all I do on repeat <laughs> listen to um, I did I did play rugby, which is how I broke my leg. I'd say that I, I didn't break my leg playing rugby. I broke my leg on rugby tour, which is a different thing. I was absolutely sourced on uh, in San Sebastian in northern Spain <laughs> on the first night we were out, and I woke up in the morning and just went, fuck. Oh, nasty. Right. Um, so play rugby, uh, which I haven't now because I haven't found a club over here, but I'm also not sure how my leg... I mean, my leg's just full of metal work now, so I'm not quite sure how that will stand up. Mm. Um... Is rugby a thing, thing in league. Netherlands? Or is, uh, is it, it is, well respected? Is, I believe it is a sport, two, Dave, yes. <laughs> there are two clubs, and also that, that gives me some assurance that it's going to be at a shit level, which is exactly my level. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, there's, um, yeah, I've got uh, a couple of kids, so they, they take up, they say what's unwind. Sometimes <laughs> they help that, sometimes <laughs> they absolutely hinder it, but they're delightful and I love them very much. <laughs> Um, and then what else to do? I think actually sort of just bring it around a little bit. And I know this is this been a topic that's been discussed quite a lot was about mental health. Is that I did have a lot on my plate. So the things that I thought were going to un- help me unwind, which is just getting involved in all sorts of different things, including stuff that uh, you know, getting some hacking underway and 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 various projects and things, which I thought was unwinding. I absolutely hit a brick wall last year, mm. like really hard. And uh, I just kind of came to a complete standstill in in everything I was doing, including work, which I had a you know surprising amount of support for, um, despite having been there for 
you know not quite a year mm-hmm. and uh and yeah so i i think i wound up by, by doing like 50 different projects for wood like by half a centimeter each time <laughs> and one of the things that so i went through so still in therapy and and one of the first bits of therapy was really and i said about you know i've, I've lost the motivation to do these things I'm just not struggling I'm struggling to push everything forward mm-hmm. and they said you need to prioritize and I said well I've got all these things how do I prioritize and they said no what what I don't mean is to reorganize your list of things to do what I mean is you need to start dropping things off there mm-hmm. and so I just dropped pretty much everything <laughs> that I was doing mm-hmm. and I think if you can you can see that in the in the NetSec Focus Twitter timeline it drops <laughs> massively <laughs> down because it's just trying to push everything forward so the things that I thought that I did to unwind, I think were just kind of, they were almost like superfluous. They were kind of adding to the, not superfluous actually, they were adding to the problem yeah. that I hadn't realized that I had. Mm. Um, and so now I occasionally play single player games on easy <laughs> for an hour <laughs> here and there. <laughs> so I played, uh, and, and more importantly, never ever complete them. So I had the Assassin's Creed Valhalla probably about halfway through. And the one that's got me at the moment is maybe like two or three hours a week of Diablo 3. Oh, <laughs> so that's, I quite like doing that. Also, um, uh, I watch a lot of shit TV and some good TV as well. Right. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's, I think in terms of unwinding, I think what I hadn't realised is how fucking wound up I was when I thought I was finding things to unwind with. And so now when I say shit TV and I've no, I, I have an issue with the phrase guilty pleasure, I think it's okay to watch, you know, five episodes in a row of 90 Day Fiancé. Fuck it. <laughs> what, what else was I going to do with my time? Anything but Love Island, let's be honest. Oh no, no, I do have some standards. Good. But Good. if that's your thing, I'm not going to judge yeah, you on it. You, you, you go do you. If, that, if yeah, that's your thing, I'm coming to your house with a bread knife. That's, that's... No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> not, I, no, he's not. I don't want the police knocking on my door, being like, "What a bread knife!" <laughs> what a bread knife! Well, I don't think they do that, Andy. Like, uh, I'm pretty sure they don't carry bread knives. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. Like, I, I think I've kind of came to similar realizations over the last uh, maybe kind of six months, uh, where I've so obviously I kind of do my cyber essential stuff at work. I'm trainee pen tester, so you know I'm definitely and I've got my exam QSTM exam in December. Um, so I do have to spend a lot of my spare time uh, on that. Uh, but I think maybe I was convincing myself a little bit that uh, when I'm not studying specifically for an exam, or for stuff I'm doing at work, I'd be like, you know, I've been buying like uh, wireless adapters, like for doing like Wi-Fi hacking, and, like um, like Bluetooth adapters, and then I've got like Raspberry Pis, and like I've got like lock picks and stuff as well for doing kind of physical stuff but it's all basically to do with security like and uh yeah even even though in my head i'm like oh but it's you know it's something different it's cool and i do enjoy it like uh there's no doubt that i'm not disconnecting properly you know by doing all these kind of tertiary kind of interesting hacky things like so uh, i've definitely been taking a bit of a step back uh, and making sure that every night i'm doing something for at least a, a, an hour ideally two that um has nothing to do with my studying it has nothing to do with security or hacking uh, it's literally just putting on star trek voyager for the five thousandth time and listen <laughs> watching through it um and uh, it's made a big big difference to be quite honest um so yeah you i think you gotta be careful uh in that regard uh, and make sure you take some time to just uh just switch off and let the rest of the batteries charge i think 
I've heard of this. Yeah, it really creeps up as well. It's just that like kind of, yeah, if you like say, buy, buy a load of stuff, or I bought a new course as well, so I'm definitely going to do that thing. I bought a book that I want to study for this yep. other one, and I'm going to buy these other bits and pieces, and then I'll just, I've got a power supply, and I've got a breadboard, and I'm going to do this some hardware bits, and then it just ends up being, let's say, here's 50 things that I'm not doing very well. Yeah. Well, well that's it. Jack of all trades, master of none. Uh, I, found, yeah. I found something that's, that not many people might have heard of, but this thing that you can do every night, it's called sleep. And if you do enough of it, you feel better after you have it. It's, it's a new revolution. I know it's, it's, it's amazing. I wish I wish people would like put me onto it sooner. Like that that whole no, legitimately for yourself though, because you mentioned in the cast a few times, and obviously we we know personally that you, you'd be a bit of an insomniac, and it, it, I, that's not an easy thing to sort. Like I've, especially uh, yeah. if you work for an American Canadian company, I'm sure it doesn't help. Uh, but it's, it sounds like you're getting it in order, man. So that's good stuff. It's not too bad. Like, like I, I still get pretty terrible nights. Like I, full, full disclosure. Like I've not always had insomnia. I've had insomnia mm. since I started doing red teaming. I don't know if they're mutually exclusive, but certainly <laughs> the the more time I spend up doing things, the more time I'm awake and the more time my brain's active. So on average, like I, I was looking through last night, I've got like I, I've started. I've been tracking my sleep for about two years. On a good night, I get about five hours of sleep. On a bad night, the worst night of sleep I've had in the past three weeks is 28 minutes of sleep. Jeez. Oh, mate. It's not enough, dude. It's not. It's really not. But I was looking through, like, uh, like a, a study over, over like a week period, because I was like, I wonder what, how, long I, how much sleep I can get in a week if I really try. I managed 20 hours of sleep in a week, which is, like, really shit. That's like, no shit. That's like, for most people, that's two nights of sleep, but for me, that was yeah. seven days. Which you is love mental. to burn that candle at both ends, my friend. I do, but I've started doing more stuff outside of work to to kind of escape. Like mm-hmm. I've started going to the gym and I've started getting back out driving again and, and watching TV and drones. Drone yeah, although yeah, I haven't crashed it too bad yet. The, the <laughs> last clip I took, I don't know if I put it up on YouTube then, but I was flying backwards because uh, that's what you do with a drone. You can fly in all, all directions. I flew straight into a bush. Mm-hmm. And it fell down a down a crevice. I had to like climb down uh, Duke's Pass to to get it. That was fun. But yeah, that's always fun. It's it is it is fun. It's a good thing to get away from keyboard. And I, I echo what what you're both saying about having like what you were saying Liam about having projects to to which you think are letting you unwind, but in actual fact they're winding up more because you're hitting walls and things. That's kind of what I no problem. No problem. Well, so from from that perspective, the the thing that I found most effective as uh, like like project wise, and you hitting hitting a, a wall is that when I started writing my book, I was writing pages like uh, like uh, like Dave, you you write stuff in your free time, but I was writing pages and pages and pages and pages and pages. But now I just don't do that because it's you, you're you're replacing what you were doing in work yeah. with more work. Yeah, 100%. I think it's definitely something that you kind of got to be careful of. And to be fair, I mean, time is finite. And if you've got an exam coming up and stuff, like, sure, uh, it's maybe going to be difficult for me in the next couple of months to uh, take too much time off. Uh, But at the same time, if I want to get some quality learning in, um, at the end of the day, I think I do the majority of that before 9pm. So, yeah, yeah, making sure you detune at night. Uh, or at least for me personally, I think it's going to go a long way. There is like a unicorn because because I have there's there's like a unicorn crossover point when it comes to time time spent studying and actual knowledge retention because I've I think I've been doing this this thing for a while I think like 
um, we, we were having this discussion yesterday, I think I've been doing security for the best part of probably 10 or 15 years, if you include all my data recovery days and things like that. Mm-hmm. But the time you spend learning, um, like I, I have spent collectively probably a couple of years consecutive, consecutively doing study for things. Easy. But I've probably forgotten more than I've learned in that period of time because of the way that like the, the psychology of learning, like it, it's it's really like meta. I've been reading about, I've, I've been learning about how learning works mm-hmm. from books about learning and i can't read it the best of times but the way in which the brain like if you if you're focusing on a topic so say say you're doing your job from nine till six or nine till seven or whatever you take a 20 minute break and you, you go and get some food or whatever you come back and you start doing study till nine you'll actually for the, the the two hour period or the one half hour period between you finishing work and you you doing that you won't actually learn anything in that period you you'll take it in but you'll find yourself in like two weeks time three weeks time four weeks time you won't retain that knowledge and the reason, the re- the main reason for that that I've found is down to, like if you if you put a if you put a, a task in between that rather than like taking a break, if you go and do something like go and watch TV for like one night out of five or or one night out of seven, it allows your brain to keep thinking and solving a problem that you're possibly trying to solve during the day and also probably when you're trying try to solve it studying. So you retain that knowledge for a longer period of time, which mm. is why when uh, people are being like going through university and stuff and, and having to to study certain topics the like lectures are like don't spend all your time studying and they're not like taking they're not like oh doing that is actually because of like knowledge retention it's quite really quite interesting but it's something that a lot of people don't really consider and you might I think everyone's different as well though there isn't going to be one hard and fast rule i think for everybody but the one thing that is probably the same for everybody is like you can't go ham or hard hard as you can yep you know, all the time. It's just that you, the, the human brain's not designed for it, and it definitely needs you need something to kind of switch off. Um, but yeah, having that thing to switch off though is incredibly interesting as well. Because you know, you know the common shower thoughts, and and people that that you have you have thoughts of things you you solve problems when you're in the shower or whatever, mm-hmm. or, or when you're doing something else. That's really good for studying on as well. On the pan, yeah. on the pan, in the shower, out on a drive. <laughs> <laughs> arguably probably be focused on the road when you're driving but sometimes I think about other things when I'm driving and I solve problems and it mm-hmm. makes it makes it easier but just taking like AFK time to pick up something and, and go and do while your brain solves another problem in the background it's always and for me music man um, is definitely you know, obviously I'm not, not directly thinking about something but um it definitely helps for putting my, myself into a different headspace um, where yeah play music for like kind of 20 minutes and then you kind of go right where was I yeah and you just approach it again. We've talked to, I think we talked about that with like Chris and and Meadow. Yep. A couple of other people's as well. Um, I'm very happy to have that as a something that I can go do. Um, on on the topic of previous guests, I was having a scroll through because I was reordering the the web page yesterday or something. We've had a lot of guests in the last two years. Like we've done 23 episodes, and 20 of those episodes with have been with people in the industry. That's like you, you think about that and you think, oh, it's 20, 20 people, but putting it. So, the only way I can visualize it, because I used to teach kids, is putting kids in a classroom and putting them at a desk. That's a lot of people that we've. It we've, really is, man. Like, yeah, it's a lot of people that have shared their story and, and all have such kind of both similar experiences, like, um, but also entirely different at the same time. Like, it's it is genuinely crazy that it's, we've kept this going for this long and that, that this many people listen in. Uh, and. And we've got 
yeah a lot of people that, that would be great to speak to like in, in the future I, I think like when we initially started out i don't think we envisaged but i don't know we said we'd try one and then try 10 and then we've kind of we, we've stopped setting benchmarks because we keep surpassing them <laughs> no that's it like we've driven forward uh and i, th- I think yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, I mean, just so listeners, if we don't choose to cut this bit, um, currently uh, Liam uh, is currently attending to something else. Uh, so me and Andy are just going uh, to have our own little chat here for a bit until he comes back. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's not like we didn't plan originally for this to be about um, like having guests on, I don't think. No, uh, we didn't. It st- started with just us. Like, and then it was like, oh, but there's just so many people out there that are willing to to give their time to talk about their story. Um, I I remember vividly when we came up with the discussion, the, the, the discussion point of Cast came up. You and I, well, I was driving us down to Sheffield for SteelCon in 2019. And we were going through a set of roadworks uh, just outside Sheffield. Chat, I mean, we were chatting loads of stuff, but we were like, oh, we should have recorded this car journey because it would have been made for a great podcast. <laughs> and we are like, oh, we should totally record a podcast. And then nothing happened for a little bit. And then like, Two or three weeks after SteelCon, we're like, let's let's do this. Let's record a podcast. How the fuck do we record a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah, and uh, look at us now. So, uh, yeah, if uh, we, we we were talking merch game uh, b- before the cast, so uh, if anyone does have interest in actually getting some kind of Ouija cast merch, uh, pop it on, Dude. pop it on our Twitter, and uh, something we can discuss. Because I suppose a couple of years. Down yeah. the line, maybe we should. Maybe at least some stickers for a couple of cons or something. I think stickers is certainly a good shout. But we always talked about having like jackets, Ouija cast oh, jackets. jackets. Yeah, I think we yeah. should still do that. Like, we will, we will, we'll get ourselves some like nice. Uh, uh, was it varsity jackets? Varsity, or, like, bo- yeah. Bo- bowling jackets, like Ouija cast branded. I also think like potentially at some point rebranding the logo, just making something a bit, a bit more fancy. I don't know. I don't know, maybe. I'm sure could. Uh, if anyone that's listening to this uh, has uh, interest in us potentially down the line uh, doing some kind of streaming, uh, I'm obviously, uh, Andy's well aware of this, uh, just typically doing live stuff. Not a huge fan of doing it personally. Uh, but um, from a learning standpoint, being that the podcast has always been about, you know, taking someone like myself that. I suppose was new to the industry and still technically is and someone that's experienced and kind of tackling problems together um if anyone has interest in us potentially doing some kind of live streams of either kind of hack the box or try hack me or something else along those lines uh let us know as well because uh it could be quite cool it could be quite good fun something casual something fun take something to learn from uh but again like anything it's just finding time isn't it it is, and like live streaming, I did a lot. Well, I say I did a lot. Of it. I did quite a few streams over, over a lot. They were really good, and they were pretty good. I do enjoy them. But one of the things I totally underestimated is the setup time for streaming. Oh yeah, like There's I've, a lot to it. I've done game streaming and stuff, and it doesn't take that long. Like maybe 10, 15 minutes prior, but setting up a hack the box stream mm-hmm. on average, like I, I think I was doing it like once a week, so every Tuesday, or every Wednesday, or every every fortnight or something. But it would take me about ninety minutes to set that up. Probably longer actually, because the the actual stream probably took about ninety minutes to set up. But then all the pretexting and stuff took most of the day. Like I'd be doing my day job, but also doing stream setup stuff in the background. And it made me value how much time that a lot of like professional streamers put in. Mm, like they, for sure. one of the guys that so I, for for those who don't know, I I'm 
last no it wasn't last year either either two years ago or three years ago i taught a college class in the evening about pen testing like an introduction to pen testing introduction to like web apps and security and that kind of stuff and one of the guys in the class was doing streaming and he was talking through his setup and things and he, i think he's still doing pretty well i can't actually remember the name of his channel but he was showing me like all the stuff that he'd set up and it was like a proper video audio rig just mm. for streaming on twitch and it made me think well i've got for podcasting now we've got well you and i have got proper audio setups for podcasting but not everyone has that and pe- people still rock rock around doing streaming with with like i don't know what so the the, the americans would call it like a janky setup but i don't know what the the uk equivalent like a kind of cowboy setup i don't think they say yeah, yeah yeah i couldn't couldn't, couldn't say uh, but yeah, no, certainly we've got the equipment there, like, and you can do a lot of this stuff on a shoestring budget as well, like if you're smart about it. Uh, but um, yeah, certainly not not something that I've naturally gravitated towards at all. Uh, but um, I think it, it could be, yeah, it could, it could be a fun wee thing if we find the time to do it. Uh, but like you say, props to all the people that are doing video content out there because considerably harder uh, than than just doing audio. Um, I might do a making of Ouija cast. Uh, at some oh, point for, be cool. for the logs. Uh yeah maybe get some cameras and stuff I don't know uh, well, so, so we, did, we did that messing about with IP cameras you could totally do that I mean I'm making That's a Ouija fun. cast and, and do like yeah. a time lapse of you cutting stuff together and all the yeah. chaos I might just make sure there's a camera fa- looking at my face just as I kind of <laughs> flick through all the audio and just all the swears and me just like <sighs> you facepalm and like oh no <laughs> it's basically going to be one long facepalm but <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, just, be good. just you with your head in your hands just halfway through like oh no andy's off on one again uh, you're always off on one uh, it's true the one time i go off on two though fun. that that is that is game over as we know it <laughs> that's gg that is gg yeah <laughs> ggwp <laughs> that's that how's your book going pretty good actually um so i was I was chatting this morning to um, a few people about things, and they were like, "Oh yeah, when you when you planning on publishing?" And I, I said to them, "Maybe January or February." And I don't know, like we're in August now. We're actually, we're almost in September now, and I've written about I want to say like twenty five percent of it, or maybe thirty percent of it. Like when when I was on the Offset podcast, TJ was like, "Oh yes, yeah, so you're almost finished." I'm like, "No, no, I've got a, I've got a bit left to read." And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, so like fifty percent." I'm like, "No, it's it's like not not written much." And one of the things I've found that people seem to underestimate is how long it takes to write things. Like, even I underestimated mm. it. Like, I was discussing how long it took me to write my first book. My first book, and you you are the reason I wrote my first book. That That's <laughs> that's the funny thing about it. My first book took me, like, actual writing time about 20 months, but planning and things took the best part of four years. Like, yeah. we started chatting about security, or you being interested in security, that was a that was a funny story actually. We were bowling. We went we went bowling, and you you were learning Java at the time, or I think it, it was. was Java. It yeah. was, no, no, it was Java. It was at uni. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You were learning Java at the time, and you were interested in what I do, and I was like, yeah, just this whatever. I mean, to give context, uh, D- Dave and I met through my ex girlfriend and became friends, uh, and 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 as as a result, a, a long friendship for for many years on. So we, we, we were disconnected for a little bit and then we, we accidentally, well, accidentally we, we bumped into each other at a periphery gig at the garage in like yeah, we did. 2017 we did. or something, I can't even remember. Mm-hmm. 
It was a while ago, but it was when the Nexus 6P came out because like we we're both oh, like, yeah. oh, you got the 6P, I've got the 6P, yeah, bruh. No, like, no, it and wasn't. Was like... We had this discussion the other day. It wasn't the 6P. It was the Nexus 6. No, it was the 6 Shamu. It was Shamu. Yeah. The yeah. phone name. Uh, for the record, everyone's like, why is he shouting the name of a whale? Like, uh, <laughs> that, that's what they decided to call it because the phone was huge. Big it was. Six inch square screen. Love that thing. Love that thing. Uh, yeah, that was good. Um, I'm going to be upgrading my phone so I can continue to use uh, NetHunter. Oh, my, yeah. Uh, yeah, OnePlus 6T, which has been an excellent phone. I think I'll go for another OnePlus. Uh, but. Yeah, quite excited about that because this thing's got like eight gig of RAM. Like, so I'm gonna be have full blown Kali Linux running on there. Um, what? So this this is the yeah. thing I don't understand. Why would you want Kali Linux on a phone? Why don't you just put normal? Lin- no, but why don't you just put normal Linux on and install the tools that you want? Like Kali Linux as an operating system, and TG's gonna shout at me. It's shite. It's absolutely shite. It's so fucking broken as an operating system. I don't think that's entirely fair. Like, see, for somebody that's maybe starting out, like, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of advantages to, you know, just building your own Linux machine, like, from scratch and installing everything, doing all the dependencies. Like, you know, of course, like, there, there's great things that come from that. But uh, I use Kali Linux for work. Uh, and it's because I can just quickly stand it up and it most, more often than not, has everything I need. I'm starting to migrate more towards Docker now. It's very much a Swiss... using Docker, but yeah, like it is very much. I agree. It's a Swiss Army knife for a lot of things. Oh, 100 percent. But, no, but that's all that is. But yeah. if you think about it, right, it's the equivalent of if you if you go into a situation, you know, the Swiss Army knives that are like a keyboard wide. That's the equivalent of Kali Linux. When realistically, you just need a bread knife. No, no, no. Of course, like I mean, it's got everything in the kitchen sink on there. I mean, it's all down to how you install it. To be fair, much image, but um, but in regards to NetHunter specifically, um, I'm not sure how easy it is to get like a full distro that also does like head mm-hmm. stuff, like uh, especially and that'll be an interesting one. So um, especially with the Razor stuff that came out. That well, and the Steel Series stuff. So I'm, I'm literally this weekend. I think if I can get a little spare moment, I really should be doing other studying, but. Um, uh, apparently someone's made a script that just basically kind of creates a you can create any kind of basically USB device uh, and spoof it um, yeah my, my boss wrote to force a, the download yeah my, my boss wrote a, a quick python script or, or or something that does it it, it spoofs the um, identifier for the driver um, yep, you plug it in it's pretty, it's pretty cool um, yeah but just just going to say in case you hadn't seen chat um, NetSec Focus has had to drop off because he has to deal with other stuff so we, we can and we're back. Welcome back, everyone. We had some technical difficulties and things went a little bit south, but now we're back and we're gonna gonna cover off the last couple of questions. Uh, th- thankfully, we've got a little bit of time to cover them off. So, can't believe you just said that, Liam. It's, it's just <laughs> 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 they're really nice people. Okay. They're really nice. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so we, we've we've heard about how you got into the industry. We've heard about how you kind of unplug and decompress, and and how you're a massive fan of Love Island. And <laughs> to see with your your time in, in industry, do you have any interesting moments that come to mind? Yeah, I think interesting moments that sort of crossover with actual infosec is that we had a cool setup through sort of with, with Netset Focus setup. It says talking in third person. There is the Netset Focus, the actual thing, rather than me. Um, we had a cool <laughs> setup with with Offsec. So got milk and a couple of other guys, and, uh, and I was, just started the call and I had to say, "There's 
there's been a bomb in my building I have to leave <laughs> and that is just the moment where sort of two parts of what I do kind of came crashing into one at the wrong time I'm like yeah. okay <laughs> not a lot you can do um, yeah interesting moments as well I think actually I just I know I know we spoke about what question we were going to do just looking at the questions there I think embarrassing moments and interesting is probably I'm going to combine a couple of them and one of them is when I worked in financial services I was in a crawl space and I've been in and out there all day and this is um, a liberal application of the Health and Safety Act 1978 uh, failing here um, is being in and out there and just as I was packing up I'd left my favourite terminal screwdriver on top of the box I was working in and I went back through to go and get it and on the way back out I tripped over this cable I just popped it out of it in a return air riser and uh, and what was weird is the, the instant silence so return air risers are what they're doing is like in a sealed building they basically you know you, you force a cool air in and then the, the return air riser is that warm air coming back out to be recycled and filtered and stuff and um and suddenly it was like silence in a in a cool space that i've been in for the rest of the best part of the day and i phoned down to engineering and they said did you do that <laughs> they pick up the phone I was like I think I've done something he's like you fucking right you've done something and what I've done it turns out I had blown a the board that was a thermocouple which is checking the temperature of the return air at that point um, and the board that it was attached to which was in the roof in the plant room uh, had blown and taken that entire panel with it and with that panel was the air conditioning for the data centre Oh um, God! Oh shit! <laughs> yeah, and so I did have, and I lost it. I'm really annoyed. At it is the old sort of tacky, um, I mean T A C H Y, um, are the ones that are sort of they're tracking the temperatures. They just got a needle on a graph and they kind of spin around slowly. And this thing shot from like 17 degrees to 35, and then just sort of you know topped out. Um, and thankfully, the only good thing is it was about half. This is for. Um, uh, for a trader and it was about half an hour before close of market and they basically were kicking open doors and windows to try and get the data center cooled down to keep everything <laughs> alive for this thing and i remember the facilities director who had pulled me in for the um for the post-mortem which was actually which is terrifying enough as they just said go home <laughs> there's nothing you can do to go home so i came in the following day and the facilities yeah. director called me in and he said um yeah you know it's just understand what's happened it's not one of those it's you know it's not a malicious act it's not because of stupidity it's this thing that shouldn't have happened in the first place you have better safeguards in place which is sort of the first thing was like i'm going to be called in the headmaster's office and and just give oh, like a good telling off knuckles rattled yeah. but not so much then the yeah. engineering manager gave me an absolute bollocking but what he did say <laughs> is that the um the insurance loss of not trading is a million pounds a minute and I was like, okay. Wow. <laughs> Jeez, and I gather that has gone up since. And this is sort of 20 years ago. It's gone up since. But it was just that is, you know, someone on not a huge amount per hour just absolutely shitting it. And the way they got it fixed is that the um, the bit of, well, the various bits of plant that I'd blown, they didn't have re um, replacements because they weren't expecting the whole thing to go. They didn't have enough replacements in the building or in the buildings that they owned or neighboring buildings or in the UK and they had one in Germany and they just said put an engineer on a plane now Shit. and they put him on the plane and they flew him out and they stood in the pissing rain on the roof replacing all this kit to get ready for trading the following day 
Wow. Jeez. I mean, I'm not going to lie that that's part of what uh, it does kind of give me the fear now starting to get a bit closer to pen testing oh, man, you know, in the next couple of years. I'm sure these things happen to everybody, but see the idea of just being let loose on a network like, and you just accidentally <laughs> topple a box without oh, no, I... maybe noticing uh, and then finding out that you've actually done something pretty serious. Like, it, it does give me the fear. I guess it's just part of the job. It's just, I've, I've done similar in the past. Like, I, I've when I've been doing pen testing, I was I was on site with one of my colleagues or one of my ex colleagues actually um, last year, just before the pandemic in America, and we we were doing pen testing of operational technology systems, so like industrial control systems essentially, and um, corporate network. And one of the things that they had said to us when we were scoping was, absolutely, there is no chance that the OT network is connected to the corporate network. Mm. Now the keywords there are there is absolutely. <laughs> no chance that the OT network is connected. That was not the case. The OT network was wired into a slash 24, which was where the DCs lived as well. So you like, DC was on like 10.10.10.101 and the OT controller was on 10.10.10.102. And I was like, someone, someone's done it bad here. So we were just like, uh, we, we pivot to a DC and then pivoted to a Windows XP machine. I was like, oh, this is cool. This is no problem. And then the the connection just died and I was like that's uh, that's a bad right there that's not it's not a good thing and then all the lights went off and I was like that's that's really not a good thing hopefully that wasn't us hopefully it's just like a fire drill or something or something's going on it was not a fire drill we took <laughs> off a factory for I want to say the best part of an afternoon and or or two days so like trading on the trading floor yeah you lose a million pounds a minute we were costing this company two hundred and fifty thousand pounds a second. Fuck. Because of production, because <laughs> they they, without giving away the 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 client or what the industry they they produce they mass produced certain stuff, um and not not drugs but they they mass produced a very expensive stuff I suppose co- cocaine not not anyway not not dr- not a drug manufacturing <laughs> company, but it was costing them two hundred fifty k a second and we're like, so this is expensive and we had the debrief call afterwards and they were like yeah so so we do disaster recovery but. Nobody's ever done that before, and the the guy that brought us in, like the security manager, was like, "Well, at least it proved that, like, it, at least these guys did it, and not like some assholes from Russia." And I'm like, "Yeah, I mean, that's fair. That's fair enough." <laughs> I suppose in a controlled environment, you know, where it's, it's known that you're doing it is always going to be better than yeah, than just yeah. tripping tripping stuff off. It it was yeah. both. That's part of the job, isn't it? So, so the fear of knocking stuff offline, like we we got the exact same, the, the the kind of just go home. There's nothing you can do. We were just like the, the the client was just like just just go back to your hotel and chill. There's nothing you can do right now and come back in the morning. We came back in the morning, the lights were still off, and I was like, oh fuck, if we really if we really fuck this up, <laughs> is this gone really badly? And uh, it turns out they just not turned the lights back on manually. They they they'd come back on like overnight and whatever, but they turned it back off because. Oh. I was like, oh thank fuck for that. That could have been. That could have been one hell of a scary opportunity. But anyway, that's that, that's that part. So in, that's an embarrassing moment, I take it, and an interesting moment. What, what's the... Have you, have you got any other interesting or great achievements? Or, or, or do we want to move on? bore on about that one, though, and, and also yours, is that there's two things from sort of systems engineering, so more sort of academic view of things rather than practical, is that there's, there's, a, there's a book that I'd recommend by Charles Perrow, which is called Normal Accidents, and it's rather than being about security incidents, it's about... Uh, things that go wrong within systems and, and large systems. So you know, Challenger, three, uh, 
Three Mile Island. So mm. other ones like this. So um, is what what happens in these things, these scenarios, and actually sort of taking a step back. And there's two things which you may hear within systems design, and one is close coupling, and that is that the effect of you know the, the loss of one thing has an effect directly on another. So, for example, if an API stops responding, does your system shit the nest because it stopped responding, or does it fail gracefully? Yeah. And the other point is this cascade failure: is that if your the API stops for whatever reason, your system shits the nest. The one down the road shits the nest and, and keeps going. You have this thing where it goes faster than you expect, and these things. Now I'm sort of a little a little grayer. Is I can look at these things and go, you know, that was close coupling that shouldn't have happened, and but they are useful, the, the, the useful kind of modes of thinking for for what's going on in there, and and so I, that's difficult to then say that when the engineering manager who was a South African was leaning, not even leaning over me, he was massive, he was like six foot four anyway, and he was still over me, and I just remember the feel of his spit on my face as he was talking. I don't think that's the time to go. Well, actually, in Charles Perry's book. Uh, this is, <laughs> No, maybe not. Uh, but you know what? I'll, I'll, we'll put that in the show notes and we'll, uh, I'll, I'll check the that out. show notes. <laughs> I said I'd get in. Um, but no, that, that sounds interesting because, yeah, like you say, like it's amazing how like uh, the smallest thing, I suppose, butterfly, is butterfly effect the right term? No, probably not. But yeah, like the smallest thing can have massive consequences uh, and if it's yeah. just not been thought out uh, and it's properly risk assessed, I guess, uh, fundamentally is what it comes down to, isn't it? Isn't butterfly effect something to do with porn? No, like, no, no, there no. is a John Ronson okay. yes. podcast called The Butterfly <laughs> Thank Effect. Fuck, someone got book. that. Yes. <laughs> Which is about actually, there's only like three porn companies in the world, and uh, yeah. the main ones, and they're run by this Canadian guy. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. worth a listen to. Put that in the show notes, too. Yeah. We'll put them in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Consigned to the show notes. Uh, it is a very interesting. Uh, I mean, so, quite quick digression. John Ronson has got a lot of interesting podcasts and things on Audible and one of the things I listened to recently I mean he does a lot of things around porn and those of you who know my background I found a lot of bugs in porn and so I have a bit of a bit of a never worked in the porn industry but had a bit of a vested interest in how things work so I went through one of trying you keep sitting on that black couch and I'm like no thank you (laughs) well so so another digression I used to work in an office that had literally a casting couch in the front office and I'm like oh no wipe that down before I sit on it yeah I'll just bring the tarp out and I'll just sit on it <laughs> but yeah the the podcast by John Ronson so there's there's the butterfly effect which is about how the adult entertainment industry is monopolized by MindGeek who are one of the bigger companies that own things and then there's another podcast which is called The Last Days of August which is about um, a, 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 a porn star I was trying I try to think of a, a, not, a, a kind of PC way of saying a, a porn star called August Ames who um, mysteriously died and it's really interesting how they go into investigate it because apparently it was suicide but throughout the um, podcast they dive into kind of the background story and it's suspected that it might have been murder but the, the, the podcast covers it really interesting so a bit of a digression there but very interesting the butterfly effect's got fuck all to do with porn but that butterfly effect does so yeah <laughs> <laughs> This has got to be one of the weirdest sign-outs of a podcast I think we've potentially ever had. Like, it's it's uh, pretty had great, few... though. Like, 
<laughs> if you think about it, all the things that we discuss in Regicast, we do cover. So I keep saying eclectic because it's a new word and I've learned a new word, but we do cover <laughs> a very eclectic range, range of topics. Of topics like. A wide range of topics, yeah. Well, someone said that I had an eclectic music taste and it's now like I've learned a new word and I like I like big words. So. It's a great word, to be fair. It's quite a short it's a word, word, but it's a, it's a good word. It's um, a complicated word, like epidemic. That's a short word as well. Or No, it's pretty long as well. But that's it's, probably much longer. Yeah. Morgan's, anyway. Morgan's gonna be like fucking sharp, Andy. You don't know words. <laughs> I'll do words good. I'll do words good. So I suppose before we kind of sign things off, um, the, um, one thing that we always kind of like to uh, like to ask is: Is there anything uh, either uh, that you're doing yourself or that someone else is doing that you want to plug and kind of put out there to people that do listen to the podcast that they should go check? Um, yeah, anything at all. I should have done more research on it because there are, and I do this thing where it's end up in like a mental block of things like I did this in a, so yeah, to digress entirely, I went into a meeting once and it was a conference call with some guys in Canada and with a guy I've been working with for five years. And I said, yeah, I'm here in the UK with, and I looked over him and I was like, like it's just fucking gone <laughs> completely. And that is exactly what's happened now is like, there's no link between the information that I know is in there somewhere and the ability to record it. <laughs> Yes, oh, there probably are, but I, and it's not through it's not the not being worthy causes, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head because That's I'm awful. terrible at this. What about yeah. your Twitter handle? You know, NetSec Focus, that thing that you moderate. You know, well, this is that thing that I do. Yeah, I think I, I <laughs> yeah. The reason why I'd be reticent to do that, there's a word for you, is because mm-hmm. um, the I think we're sort of slowly winding down at the moment. There's there's just kind of I think we hit a peak. And we hit a subsequent peak, and then I think it's just been a case of it's hard to do. It's really fucking hard to maintain a, a community. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I shit post more than I, I post anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I plug that, but I just say actually no. I I would. This is this is sort of terrible advertising to so say look at other communities. Think people are doing better and better engaged. Um, I think yeah, part of it, like say, and previously in the podcast, is just like I hit a wall and just like fuck, I can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Some of it is that, um, some other things, and just yeah. So I'd say yeah, we'd, we'd plug that. You can follow me on Twitter for like I really reply more than I actually tweet stuff, and that's actually part of the things as you say, the things that I was interested in researching and reading about, and I'll tweet about. I no longer do because I'm not reading about them. I'm watching, watching. Can, yeah, 16 episodes of Ted Lasso in a row. <laughs> tweet about that if you like. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that, man. But at the end of the day, like, yeah, you you got to focus on... We can only focus on so much. Uh, and like you say, running a community of anything, even if it's something as small as this podcast, um, can sometimes be, be a bit of a mental challenge, um, no doubt. And um, yeah, no, but uh, obviously thanks for kind of joining us like um we very well might get you on for another kind of round two at some point in the future um uh but thanks for your time i think you've had such an interesting career it's been really interesting to hear about quite different to kind of other people we've had on uh and yeah we appreciate it had a really nice time and if if you go away from anything don't go into an airport and pretend that your your luggage is a bomb because that's a bad (laughs) thing to do only if you're a coward (laughs) <laughs> <You're a coward. laughs> be a hero do it <laughs> seems like a fly again <laughs> it's wow. like I see no right so so going off on, does anyone remember Dick and Dom bogeys oh no. mate 
Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm up for this. I don't so, really want to fly again. Let's do this. <laughs> so if you want to get on a no-fly list, <laughs> this is how you do Oh, God. <laughs> don't fucking do it. Thanks for listening. This has been Cast episode 20. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.